Welcome to Be The Way Forward. I'm your host, Brenda Darden-Wilkerson, and I'm so excited to bring you today's episode where I sat down with Dr. Brittany Barreto. She's a leading voice in femtech and dedicates herself to advancing female, women, and girls' health and wellness through innovation. That was really the turning point for me where I said, this isn't just like fun or like interesting. This is this is life or death and it needs a, a someone to be really passionate to work in it. And so I said, I'm going to work at a femtech venture fund, a fund that's investing in women's health. It's an eye-opening and rewarding discussion that I hope you'll learn from as much as I did. Here's our conversation. So... I'm here today with Dr. Brittany Barreto, and I am so excited. Dr. Barreto, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Can you please give our audience an introduction? Tell us about you, a little bit about your background. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I am a geneticist by training, so a nerd at heart. I have a PhD in molecular and human genetics uh, from Baylor College of Medicine, where I studied small RNAs and E. coli and stress-induced mutagenesis. So like I said, true true nerd. Uh, but I had way too much personality to work in a lab my whole life. And so I started my first startup in grad school, which was the first world's first DNA-based dating app, which is a whole nother episode for us to do and talk about. Uh, And then I went into venture capital, investing in founders and innovative technologies. And that's really when I discovered this industry called Femtech. And Femtech is innovation in women's health and wellness. And I've been working in this industry now for about four, almost five years. And um, I do things like host a podcast called Femtech Focus. I lead a virtual community of women's health innovation founders and job seekers. Um, And then we also do market research and events. So all things women's health innovation all day. So yes, to all of that, I'm so excited. Um, You know, thank you for for filling all of that in. I feel like we're fellow nerds. (laughs) And a little later in the podcast, I'll explain why just on, on so many levels. I'm so excited for the work that you do. And I just want our listeners to hear all about why it's important. So first of all, what is Femtech? Femtech is innovation in women's health and wellness. And that includes solutions to conditions that solely disproportionately or differently affect female women and girls. And so I'll break that down for a quick second there because it's a lot. Essentially means that women aren't just menstruators and pregnant, right? We are also people who have bones and our bones are going to be degraded once our estrogen drops after menopause. And so when we think about osteoporosis or bone health, we need to be thinking about what exercise routines are we recommending to 40 and 50 year old women to increase their bone strength right before they go through menopause. Um, Femtech is also heart disease. The way that cardiovascular disease manifests in the heart biologically looks a lot different in males and females. And so when you create, let's say, a blood test that's currently used in urgent care to diagnose your heart attack, the molecule it's measuring is actually only increased in males. And so the standard of care to diagnose your heart attack isn't made for females. The idea is that it's just not about pregnancy and periods anymore, which absolutely require more innovation and more funding and all the things, right? But it's also brain health, autoimmune disease, chronic pain. And also I mentioned the female women and girls because a lot of times for kids, we just say kids as in 
sex and gender doesn't start to affect you in utero, let alone childhood. Um, and so we need to identify girls as having specific needs. And then also not everyone who identifies as a woman or, you know, everyone with a vagina or menstruator may not identify as a woman. And yet there's these products absolutely need to be available to anyone with a uterus or vagina. There's absolutely so much there. And I want to get into that a little bit more later. But for people who don't understand, you know, so why Femtech? Let's talk about the impact of, of first of all, of having something called Femtech. Mm. And then let's talk about the impact of when we don't have it or when we didn't have it, because you're making it so we do <laughs> and really bringing that focus to us. And I'm so grateful for that. But let, let's help people understand why this is so critical. This is really critical because, I mean, on the most extreme sense, women's lives are on the line. Um, they are literally dying due to the lack of diagnostics or accurate treatments to help them. Um, moreover, if, even if they're not dying, they're in chronic pain or chronic, um, you know, misdiagnosed or undiagnosed state. And so... Um, I'll give you a great example of the impact of Femtech. So endometriosis affects one in 10 women. It's essentially when your endometrial lining, when it's supposed to be on the inside of your uterus, actually ends up outside of your uterus. So you literally have tissue shedding from maybe your colon or your diaphragm. And so places oh in your gosh. body where there should not be tissues dropping and bleeding, right? And so there is still today no cure for, well, there's actually no diagnostic tool for it. So it takes on average 10 years to be diagnosed with it. And then there's no drug to treat it. There have been two pharmaceutical drugs that went through cell models and then animal models, and it was looking so promising. And yet both times when it went to human clinical trials, it failed immediately. Why is that? Why was millions of dollars wasted, millions of hours and time and animals' lives? Like, we don't even need to get into that. And what happened was that the backdrop to science is male-dominated. And so what I mean by that is um, the cell lines we use are predominantly male cell lines. In fact, 75% of scientists, when asked, what is the sex of your cell line, they said they didn't know. And when you're not asking, what is the sex of my cell line, you don't know what sex as a biological variable might be doing in your experiment. And so they're literally using male cells, XY chromosomes to test drugs for endometriosis markers. And you may think that's so obvious, right? But the, this is how we've always done it. Today, 95% of animal models are male only. There is no protocol. There's nothing approved by the FDA or NIH to do an experiment on a female animal model. And so, yeah, those drugs failed because all the tests they did were on a male backdrop. And so whenever when they went into female humans, it failed. And so that's like a really poignant, like, as a scientist, sad, disappointing, discouraging point. And then as a woman, the same, um, feeling uh, just totally like, what are we doing, right? And so my job, I feel like, is to just wave the sex flag and say, was sex and gender considered? That's all I'm asking you to do is ask that. And a lot of times you'll realize the answer is no. That's the first stopping point, right? We don't even need to get further than that. If we can't answer yes to that, then we shouldn't be doing it. But I, I want to make sure that people understand that we're not just, this is not just a, an intellectual conversation. This, this has real people implications. Yes. And, and um, it's not only just the implications to women, but it's the implications to our economy and businesses. 50% um, of the workforce is now female. And when your workforce is not feeling well, if they're not able to be present, if they have to take off time from work to try to figure out a, a condition diagnosis that they haven't had yet, um, that affects the body. 
bottom line of businesses. And it's actually one of the driving factors for femtech right now is this employer business model, selling to employers as a benefit to their female employees and as a point to attract and retain female talent. So, wow, I want to go so many places with this. But let's first talk about, since you brought up the business aspect, um, we, you know, we love founders and we love people who are creating solutions, which obviously you are doing. So Femtech in general, is it a good investment? It's an absolute great investment. So we crunched the numbers because before us, there were no numbers. We have a huge data desert issue in Femtech, but we're filling that gap in now. And it is a quite exciting because when you don't know what the data is, it is a little nerve wracking, right? Is it going to be show a good story or a bad story? So exciting. It's a great story. So it turns out Femtech companies are exiting in half the time it takes other health tech companies to exit. And we're exiting on average $100 million more than other health tech companies. So what are the numbers? The numbers are is if you've started a women's health company in the last 10 years, your average time to exit is four years. And the average exit value is $350 million. And the reason for that, right, because we said, well, my goodness, like this is potentially the best kept secret in healthcare. Why is this what's happening? Less than 4% of pharmaceutical R&D budgets are going to study women's health. If you actually take cancer out of that, it's only 1% of pharma R&D goes to women's healthcare. To put that in context, That's crazy. 2% <laughs> of pharma R&D goes to studying the prostate alone. Yeah. So we have 2% versus one for one organ in males versus all of females. Okay. Now, all right. So that's like not great, but that is what's leading to this faster and bigger exits because essentially what pharma has done is decided instead of creating their own internal innovations, they will just seek external, external innovations. And so in Femtech, our companies don't even have to get FDA approval to be acquired. In fact, the vast majority of them are still in animal models, if potentially even maybe human trials. But that's when they're getting exits. And I mean, that is just a dream for any other health tech founder or investor is that you're, you have potential acquirers pre-commercialization. So huge, huge benefit to investing in femtech. So does that mean that we're getting invested in faster and with bigger numbers too? <gasps> not yet. Not no. yet. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. But it would make so much it sense, right? It would make right? so much sense. It would. And that, you know, and that's part of my role. I feel like at Fem Health Insights and Femtech Focus is to put out those numbers to educate people because I can absolutely sympathize with an investor who doesn't want to put their money in an industry they don't really understand and there's no track record of success right? That didn't exist before. So we're really excited that we're putting these papers out there. We're starting to get people excited. And I will say that there is a genuine curiosity and a genuine like uh, eagerness to learn more about women's healthcare and make an investment in the space. I mean, there's still a lot of hurdles for our industry and companies, and we can get into that. But one of the issues I see in terms of where's the investment then? Why isn't everyone just pouring all their money into it? Right. Is, um, right. <laughs> they're, right? Yeah. You, we should just be doing that. Is because logical. <laughs> most investors. <laughs> predominantly are male, especially the decision makers at the biggest venture firms, right? The biggest, biggest checks of the world are still at the end of the day being decided by males. And investing is two parts. One is logic. So financial models, business models, et cetera. And that's where we're trying to fill in the gap with that good market research data. And the other part though, is intuition. You as an investor, 
FOMO and emotion is a huge part of where you put your money. And if you are not personally motivated or excited to talk about heavy menstrual bleeding, or uterine fibroids, or chapped nipples during breastfeeding. Like, these are topics that men may not feel compelled to go give their next portfolio update about, right? Either because they're nervous they may make a Right. say something silly, they're nervous they may say something offensive without any intention of doing so, or whatever. They're just not that excited about it. Right. And so where I'm really looking forward to is as we grow the awareness of the need for this, um, and we and we increase gender equality, get more women decision makers, hopefully then we'll also start to finish that crossing line and getting the big checks. Right. I mean, and what I'm looking for here, when we think about tech in general, we look, we think about people who are innovative and they take an idea, they take something, it's the something from nothing thing, right? So we're, I'm looking for the vision. I'm looking for those people to really have vision and, and to be that first or second person out there to be that man to talk about crack. Yeah. Right. I, I don't, I don't see a problem with that at all. I, that's just me, but I want to just take just a little diversion here into how you got into this, because when I first started to learn of your work, I've listened to so many of your podcasts. I love your podcast. Love, love, love. When you talked about how you ended up getting down your path, and I think this is so important for so many of our listeners, it, it really resonated with me because I entered undergraduate school. In fact, most of my young life, I wanted to be a doctor. And when I got into pre-med and I started to really understand some of these things that you shared, that most drugs are not tested on women. Uh, you even talked about on one of your podcasts about the 30th anniversary of even a law, right, to require that women are part of clinical trials. 30 years is not that long ago. And we know that practice follows law. Just because it's a law doesn't mean people actually start to practice it, Right. And when I think about my own background, when I decided I didn't like the way it looked, I made a left turn and went into computer science. Now I'm happy, but you stayed, you went deeper. You went in to really try to solve the problem. And that's why I feel so connected to what you're doing. And, and I want somebody else out there to be inspired by your decision. So can you talk a little more about that decision and, and what it took to, to get to where you are doing the work that you're doing that's so important. First and foremost, let me qualify myself as a trauma survivor. I think that most founders are trauma survivors because you, under any normal circumstance, you would not pick this unpredictable, chaotic lifestyle. Like there's a certain kind of brain wavelength you need. True. So let me just self-qualify <laughs> as not a typical human, <laughs> like definitely operating on some kind of other platform. But um so what happened essentially was that I was working at the venture fund and in Texas and I came across some women's health companies and I'll tell you the story about one of them. So there was a, a doctor, a pediatric gynecologist. So she worked with young girls, either fixing birth defects or accidents that happened or, you know, things that happened to younger girls, ovaries, et cetera. And she approached me saying, I'm inventing the first ever vaginal stint. And I said, great. What, it, what is a vaginal stint? And she said, well, when women have gynecological cancer, 
ulcers or a, 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 form, a, a deformation or something that I need to fix in the vagina, when you get radiation treatment, your vagina is actually a shut tube. A lot of people think that it's like this open hole. It's not. It's closed. It's a closed tube. Mm-hmm. And so when you burn that skin, it actually has a high chance of melting together. And I was like, wait, girls' vaginas are melting shut? And she was like, yeah, there's actually a huge rate of divorce after ovarian or cervical cancer survival because essentially the shop is closed, right? And like couples don't know how to handle that and and then just kind of disintegrates. And she's telling me this stuff and my face looked just like yours. Like, wait, in which country is this happening or what year, what century, you know? And it was like, no, this is happening at Texas Children's Hospital, the largest medical center in the world by like a top physician. And so she said that standard medical care for her as she after she sutures her patient she takes a medical glove stuff stuffs it with gauze ties off the end puts that in the vagina and that's what they're using to maintain the integrity and then the girl has to stay in the in the hospital for a few days before it gets removed all it's just absolutely insane i wanted to flip over the table and that was the moment i said I'm done. Not that I'm done forever, but I felt in that moment, I'm done mentoring the blockchains of the world. I'm done mentoring like this, uh, the other thing. Like I, I love clean tech and healthcare, but like if women's vaginas are melting shut, like why are we talking about anything else? Right. Which, but, and we're not talking about it. Yes. And it's not an issue. Yeah. Right? Why is it not an issue? Why is that yep. normal? And by the way, there is a uh, rectum stint for men with prostate cancer so their butts don't seal shut. Uh, that device exited to Boston Scientific for $850 million. So not only is it wow. like abysmal and uh, shameful, the current standard of care for vaginas, but you want a billion dollar idea? Here you go. Here you go. Like, here's the track record, you know? Um, this butt plug sold, <laughs> medical grade butt plug sold from us a billion dollars. <laughs> like, come on. We innovate for to put things in vaginas all the time. Let's make a medical stint. So that was really the turning point for me where I said, this isn't just like fun or like interesting. This is this is life or death. And it needs a, a someone to be really passionate to work in it. And so I said, I'm going to work at a femtech venture fund, a fund that's investing in women's health. And in 2019, there was only one in the world. And it only had $10 million under management. And I was like, what? We just heard that was in 2019. And it was how many million? Just 10? Today, we have six venture funds totaling $150 million under management. So a lot of growth there, like five funds forming in the last three years is huge. And at the same time, it's a drop in the bucket compared to all the trillions that are allocated to healthcare in general. So that makes the work that you do triply important. And and you are right at, at the epicenter of women's health. Uh, and the connection, the intersection with tech is is so amazing. So when you think about the the types of founders that you've seen and, and that, that you've encouraged, what are the gaps? People are out there doing important work, but what are the gaps that, that you see where more people should jump in? Because we want to encourage people who are listening who might say, uh, who would ever who would ever use this or how could I ever get engaged? What what types of gaps could they address? My goodness, there's literally so many. Um, <laughs> the first gap I could say is and what something that would actually translate to helping a founder is being more open about your female health experience. And so like one suggestion I always give people is stop hiding your tampon in your sleeve. Put it on your freaking desk. If you're menstruating at work or school that day, like leave your pads out because men don't even realize there are menstruators in the room. 
right? Because we hide it so well. We accommodate so well. We just blend in, which is great. And I'm not saying women need to be bleeding all over themselves. But I am saying, let them know, like, this is what's happening, by the way. And I'm here being a boss-ass lady. Uh, like, oh, by the way, I need to use the restroom. Right. At the same time, those can coexist. So raising awareness, talking about your women's health experience. If you're a man, asking the women in your life, hey, have you ever, like, gone misdiagnosed or undiagnosed for something, like, women's health-wise? Or you will be shocked, you know, if you ask them about, hey, can you tell me about your birth story if you're open to it? What was it like for you, right? You might hear things like, yeah. I really wanted to walk around. My body was telling me I needed to walk, but, you know, all the IVs and the cords, I couldn't get out of the bed, right? And right. you might be talking right. to someone who's an engineer who's like, why isn't that stuff Bluetooth yet? Which, by the way, is absolutely a question today. Why are women still quote unquote, strapped down via all these cords, you know, monitor devicing, when we know that women's bones are literally moving when the baby's exiting and she needs to maybe be on her hands and knees or squatting down or whatever. Right. So it's like, can we all, can we please put some Bluetooth in the maternity ward? <laughs> like, um, yeah. And so another way that we can really help founders and, and femtech gain this traction outside of just awareness is either investing, obviously, we need more angel investors, um, but also we need donors for research. So one of the biggest problems that I see is founders are raising their first round of capital in order to do basic research and create a data set for them to build their product on. So much of femtech is, well, I know this is a problem, but we actually can't make a solution yet because no one knows how often this problem happens. Let's say hot flashes right. for menopausal women. We're just starting to reveal like, Black women have more hot flashes than white women. Okay, how does that go into our product design? You know, if we know that the consumer is more like this or like that, um, we can take into account, you know, things like uterine fibroids and heavy menstrual bleeding and what products are actually useful for that that demographic. Based on their age, that might be a diva cup or it might definitely not be a diva cup, right? Depending on what generation they're in. Yeah. And so um, we need some basic basic scientific research uh, and researching of the industry in general. Today, I was trying to find a um, statistic of how many days of work do menstruators uh, miss every day in the United States, and that's not a published number. These are things that we should, somebody should have researched that, right? right. So, um, right. yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned the hot flashes, mm -hmm. right? And so one of the things that, that I've done, because I'm in the hot flash club, um, is I will just mention when I'm having one. I'll say, you know what? Private summer. Let me hang on. I'm going to turn on my fan. And the men that are in my environment, at first they were sort of, you know, kind of blinking at me like, you know, aren't you not supposed yeah. to talk about that? But I like what you say about the more that we normalize the things that we've been taught to be shamed of, ashamed of, um, that's our part. So I mean, I want everybody out here, you know, if you, you do what you want, but I'm of that club yeah. too. I'm willing to talk about it. And I think that's so important. But you made, you mentioned something really critical. The fact that there isn't data already, and we've got to like go gather this data in order to consider the solutions. Yeah. And then you mentioned the intersections that black women have hot flashes for longer. It's funny. Somebody was uh, talking to me about, uh, she was talking to an older lady about, you know, I'm having these hot flashes and I, I'll, I'll be glad when this is over. And the woman was like 15 years older than she was. And she said, oh, honey, it's never over. <laughs> we were thinking, what? Yeah. Right. But we're hearing this from each other and not from the established folks that should be sharing it. So what is your forecast 
Or how long is it going to take for us to get to the place that we have this cache of data such that we are really able to solve these problems that women have really been suffering from? Like you said, endometriosis, no way to to even diagnose it or to treat it. You know, a part of me says, honestly, not yet. Like when, how, like if it hasn't been done yet, like there must be some huge barriers that we have to overcome and there. And there are some big barriers. Right. Um, But at the same time, I'm very inspired by the Gen Z generation unaccepting of the status quo. And I think that that, that social movement and their leadership, their up and coming young adulthood is going to change. Like what PhD project do you want to work on? Well, if it's a non-binary, you know, Gen Z person, maybe that's what they want to study, something more that they identify with. So I'm really excited to see the youth and what they're going to be working on and deciding is their career paths and their passions. I think that'll really move the needle in terms of the, the projects getting started. And I'm also encouraged by technology and AI and blockchain. And like, we do have a lot of really cool tools. We have a lot of women, one in four women are tracking their health on their phone in in a way that is influencing how they live their life. One in four women, 25%. That's a lot of data, right? Now we have to be very careful about women's health data. I know, I know. I'm I'm (laughs) throw that. I know (laughs) we could definitely talk about it, but if we could figure out like an ethical, awesome facilitation, way to get this data, interpret it, and actually report on it, um, it could be sooner than we think. You know, yes, I'm definitely glass half full like you are. Um, But, you know, I think what will be helpful for us is to really understand what it takes to, to be a founder. So can you talk to us about who, who are these founders and, and what are, you know, just like we learned what inspired you, which is an amazing story. What types of things are inspiring them to, to get engaged? Love this question because we have a really unique trend in women's health. So over 85% of our founders are female. I do not know of any other industry where you have 85% female leadership. You know, maybe childcare. That's great. I don't know. Like that's th- uh, yeah, that's, right, right. Uh, and so, what's happening is that we see women that are in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and medicine, having a bad experience in the healthcare system or in just their everyday life as a woman, and they're saying. I need a solution, not finding one, and then saying, well, that's unacceptable. I'm going to do something about it. And so, you know, women have been here. Healthcare has been here. Why now is women's health a thing? One of the driving factors, as I said earlier, is women in the workforce, right? Another driving factor is women in STEM. So if we had proportionate Mm -hmm. numbers of female Mm -hmm. and males in STEM over the last 50 years, we would have had over 7,000 more women's health solutions in the market. And they looked at patents and ratios of patents, and they said, based on female STEM professionals, um, disproportionately study female health issues versus men will study more like dual sex issue, healthcare issues. And so, um, yeah, women in STEM is now leading to the rise of of products and solutions and research. And then, um, and so that's you know our our audience, which is these these collaborative scientists, female mom sisters grandmothers, caregivers. Um, it's a very collaborative industry, which makes me, I love it. Like I knew, I knew I jumped head first and um, into it, but I'm so happy where I landed in terms of an industry filled of people who put 
purpose over profits every single day, passion over profits every single day. They they don't even care if this solution is out in time to help them with their issue. They care about the future women that could benefit from this. It's a really altruistic industry. Um, and I think that actually is another investment talking point is like these people will go out of their way to make this successful no matter what. That is... The, the mark, I believe, of true innovation, uh, when you think about the things that we take for granted that were utterly impossible years ago, it was because people were willing to go that thousandth mile mm-hmm. and to hear that women are and, and we because we are so personally affected about it, it makes sense that we would be engaged. So what about the exits? You talked about that we're exiting earlier. We're exiting with great value. Are we seeing where there's cross collaboration? from company to company? How are we building together? There are so many partnerships. Um, I don't think I've signed an NDA in like three years (laughs) in terms of femtech founders. It really is that kind of collaborative spirit. And so I do see cross promotion between CPG products. So for example, one of my favorite sexual wellness companies is called Awkward Essentials. And it is a post-sex cleanup sponge for women. So once again, a topic most people don't talk about, but after sex, women's vaginas, we got some stuff, some of our stuff, some of your stuff, some of other people's stuff. And women will get yeast infections or UTIs afterwards if they are not cleaning themselves up properly afterwards. So here's your little public service announcement. Females, please pee after sex. It's very important and like scientifically proven to help you prevent a UTI. But Awkward Essentials essentially is this consumer packaged good. It's a little sponge that a woman can insert into vagina. It sucks up all the excess fluid. And they are seeing actually decreased rates of yeast infections and UTIs. And now this company made an awesome partnership. I saw another, the other day in their newsletter where they were selling uh, vaginal microbiome safe lubricant, right? So those are obviously that same customer wants that, right? She wants to have a healthy sex life at the same time. She may be suffering from chronic UTIs or, you know, it's it it's just her prerogative and it's her life and she wants those products. But I, I do see that cross collaboration. It makes my heart so happy. That is amazing. And it actually makes a lot of sense that of the just the way that we know how to collaborate. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go there, right? Um, it turns into amazing solutions and profit. Uh, so just another set of reasons to to invest in these amazing types of uh, ventures. So let's talk about a little bit about the hurdles. So you you talk to founders. Some are obviously very successful. We're excited about it. But what are the hurdles to in getting into fintech? And and what are the things that you've seen that need to be addressed by women who are trying to do this work? Well, we've talked about some of them. So we have a lack of data to base your innovations on. We have a lack of funding because a lot of the men don't feel comfortable, don't really understand what you were really working on. We have a, a data gap in terms of the market research, and we're trying to fill that gap, right? Showing the market size, the consumer you know, size, the value, all of that. But some right. other barriers are, for example, um, lack of billing codes. So historically, femtech has been a direct-to-consumer industry. Why is that? It's because if we try to go through the healthcare system, someone's got to pay for it, right? It's insurance companies, hopefully. And those insurance companies, though, in order to bill them, you need this little code. And those codes are made by somebody in Congress, like someone in, you know, the government that is saying, okay, here's all the healthcare solutions, here's all the codes, here's their prices, et cetera. And then they negotiate out and the whole healthcare plan system goes. 
Now, if you do not have a solution, let's say, for example, um, ovarian cancer diagnostic. There is still no diagnostic for ovarian cancer. You are diagnosed usually when it metastasizes, okay? And so the, like, the mortality rate is horrific. Um, there is no code for that diagnostic. And so I have several of... Are you kidding mm-hmm. me? Please tell me. That is not still the case. It is still the case. And so there are a few ovarian cancer diagnostic startups working on amazing science right now, but they already know, their investors already know, they're going to have to petition for a new billing code. And that on average takes about three years to get. And so when I talk about the barriers to getting investment or the barriers to businesses being successful, how your med device, your diagnostic or your therapeutic is going to get paid for is a huge barrier. Um, and so what happens is that these companies then say, well, we'll go to direct to patient in the meantime, like we'll just sell it out of pocket. But unfortunately, histor- right now, I think we're being very, very vigilant about this. But what happened in the in the last 10 years or so, what happened was that all of a sudden the branding was for the affluent white woman, because that's the only person who could really afford a $10,000 at home belly monitor for your pregnancy, right? And so all of a sudden, similar to a lot of feminism, uh, it was white women who were getting the advantage first. But I'm really proud of our industry. We are super DEI. Like, um, if you post something a panel without a black woman or a brown woman or an Asian woman on it, Femtech will come for you because we, we, we live by this um, motto that women are not small men, but we also live by the motto that not all women are the same. We all have different needs and it could just be, you know, whether it's cultural or socioeconomic or biological, like we literally are different as well. So we have to take that into account, which means we need to get Medicare, Medicaid and insurance companies to cover our solutions. You know, I I bet uh, a lot of people listening didn't realize just how complex taking a solution to market is. It's the fact that you've got to go to Congress. Right. And we know Congress is behind, especially in technical. I mean, to have them have a conversation with them about anything technical is just we're not there yet. Right. Um, and then you add that intersection of medical and then you add the intersection of different backgrounds of women and age and all of that. It almost sounds impossible. So I just, you know, hats off to you for being a pioneer and for all of the other women who are are being pioneers out there. And one of the things that we always want to do is encourage our listeners and how they can get involved. So what do you say to that little girl? who might be listening. She's sitting next to mom or dad or whoever's listening to this conversation, auntie, cousin, listening to this conversation. And she's getting inspired, right? Because she hasn't been talked out of her good sense yet, right? So what do you say to her about what she can do about this? Because it directly impacts her. There's some amazing organizations out there that some are for nonprofit that she could either get involved in as like a, you know, subscribing to the newsletter as minimum or start a chapter in her local um, area. There's also for profit companies. So I'll give you an example. There's a company called Ant Flow. And what they're producing is uh, free tampon and pad dispensers in the restrooms. Um, there are now, I think, 17 states that require free menstrual products in the school bathroom. And um, many of them are not complicit with this. It's a lot of, uh, well, we have the old metal quarter in, you know, right. 1960s tampon that you're like, how long has this been right. in there? Why is there a moth that just flew out of that this metal box? <laughs> right. Um, and so Ant Flow, I love their marketing strategy because then it's a for-profit company. But what they're doing is they're having the girls of their own schools 
say, oh, we want this. We need this. And by the way, you should have a full menstrual health day. And we teach everyone in school, whether that be elementary, high school, college, about what menstruating is and, and period poverty. Right. And they've actually seen um, girl schools that have their products. Girls on average are going to school 1.5 days more per year. That is a reflection of period poverty in our backyards. Girls are literally missing school in America. And this isn't just like, you know, in, in really run down yeah. places. This is every city has girls that are missing school because they don't have access to period products. And so um, this is not some Africa or India issue. This is our issue right here, right now, everywhere. But that's one way she can get involved with Aunt Flo and, and then take that material to her school and say, I want to, you know, do this. There's nothing like the grassroots. There's nothing like empowering the grassroots to create those solutions right where they are. And then the, the ripple effect we know is amazing. And so I, I love Enflow. When I heard about that organization, I thought that was a great idea. The fact that we still have states where menstrual products are not free and we have those states where they are supposed to be free, not compliant, that's another way that our listeners can, you know, just ask the question, hey, what's going on here? I, I know that in my state, we should have this for free. So that's it, just so critical. And so what can people, how should people look at themselves and say, what can I do with this amazing information I got today? I would say, and this is probably actually applicable beyond Femtech, this is probably applicable to every one of your episodes. I have been someone who people ask, a lot of questions too. And now I'm like, you know, I'm not a gynecologist, but I know about all of my friends' yeast infections and like urinary incontinence <laughs> and prolapse and birthing stories and all that stuff. But, you know, I come across with a sense of, I'm not going to judge you, you know? And I feel so often, you know, I, I feel like more boys came out to me as gay in high school than I think most other people. And I always think about that. Like, why do people feel like they can tell me their biggest secrets? And I think it's because I just walk around and like, a, I'll, I'll, I'll love you for who you are. I'm not going to judge you. Right. And also I'm happy to tell you when I don't know the answer. And I'm also happy to dive in and nerd out if I do, because for femtech, I want people to be able to ask, especially men, men, you know, I have men come up to me saying, do women use one tampon the whole time? Like, I literally don't know. And they're so nervous to ask me, you know, and I, I'm able to say, yeah, no, that's actually not what happens. <laughs> we, we use like four yeah. or five a day. And um, that's awesome. Uh, and I think, like you said, it has application across the board. We need to listen to each other more yeah. and we need to be the type of people that somebody knows if I say something to this person, they'll listen to me because half the time when I share, I come up with my own solutions just because now I've shared. I've heard myself in the eyes of someone else. Right. So if, if some if I can be that for somebody, I might be helping somebody solve or just have a better day, let alone solve a problem that they're uniquely able to solve. That's great. That's great. So. I think that this is going to be part one of several conversations that we have. You're doing so many amazing things. I, I would just like for you to, to leave us with one amazing founder that everyone should know about. What? Okay, two. Okay, two. <laughs> Ooh, my goodness. Okay. Um, um, 
Rachel Bartholomew out of Canada. Her company is called High Ivy, H-Y-I-V-Y. And it is the uh, first uh, pelvic floor kind of massage tool for women who have experienced cancer in that recovery phase. And so a lot of times women will have a lot of scar tissue or vaginal um, attrition where it's kind of like it's shrinking. And so today we have these dilators that are very phallic looking, like giant penises that women are told to take home and essentially insert to break up the scar tissue. I don't know if any of you listeners have ever broken up scar tissue before. It is a very, very painful experience. And these women are trying to get back to a healthy sex life or just feeling comfortable sitting down, right? And so um, what she's created, and she's actually a survivor of cervical cancer. She got it in her 20s. Um, And this device is so that the woman can stay at home, get her pelvic floor therapy with a device that has has different balloons that can increase in very, very small amounts. It's self-lubricating so that it's very gentle on the woman. It uses heating. It's like the the luxury version of these old phallic things. Um, uh, and, I, and I just really love what she's doing because um, when I learned about the pelvic floor therapy, I, I really couldn't imagine myself feeling comfortable with it. Pelvic floor therapy is when you literally go into an office in a professional, and they are professional, but they stick their fingers in your vagina and they're breaking stuff up they're moving stuff they're putting their finger in your anus um you know the colon is right there and so they need to break up scar tissue in the back imagine being able to do that via telehealth with a device that's actually giving the data to your therapist and you're in a safe place i'm i'm personally a a sexual trauma survivor we don't talk about that enough how many women are sexually traumatized and how often we're asking women can you sit naked while i talk to you about your health and stick my fingers in you. It's like wow. all important conversations. Right. Everyone needs pants on. Okay. Um, there, yeah. Like we, we can yeah. just make that yeah. rule today. Right. Like, yes. Um, <laughs> if you're talking to me about what's covered or not in my exam, I should have pants on. Um, and so that, that's my founder and my story as to why I'm picking her. Cause I think it's uh it's one of those things where she is a woman in STEM had cervical cancer at a young age realize the the trauma that she had to go through every week going to see this therapist who are lovely amazing humans and she's empowering them with her device this is awesome is so i would love is there anything else that you'd like to leave our audience with or share share with us that we just need to think about and need to know i just want to remind everyone that women's health is everyone's health um we are an industry that loves men and uh we can't do this without them in fact i think the root cause of all of this is that we separated the girls and the boys to learn about periods and penises in a young age, and men are continuing to segregate themselves away from women's health conversations. And so I think we need to merge that classroom. <laughs> we need to merge these conversations. We need to be, talk about it more often. Um, and, you know, one way that you can do that, because I know for me, I didn't know about any of this. I, I was a woman in a PhD genetics program when I found out women are only fertile like three days a month. I was like, what? Like, how come all the women are pregnant all the time then, right? Like, and, and we, but um, we have a really a lack of understanding. And if you need some more talking points or, or you know, something to to sink your teeth into, listening to the Femtech Focus podcast would be great for you. If you're listening to this, you obviously love podcasts. Um, and I interview innovators and thought leaders in different capacities of women's health. Like we just had someone on talking about women's health who are incarcerated. 
these are topics we don't typically hear about. How do you handle your period and when you're in jail or prison? How do you have a baby if you're, you know, arrested when pregnant? Um, things like that. So these are just really great stories. Sink your teeth in. So listen to the Femtech Focus podcast and, uh, you know, reach out to me there. Reach out to me on social media. Tell me what you're interested in. We have a virtual community. Introduce yourself. A lot of people hiring right now. A lot of people looking for interns. So a big opportunity to work for female leadership, diverse leadership on a really important topic. This is amazing. I just want to thank you for being here and inspiring us. This is part of what we do at AnitaB.org is to lift up the stories of amazing women who are just changing the world. That is you. And thank you for encouraging people out there to do the same. And I can't wait till we see each other again. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. I want to thank Dr. Brittany Barreto again for speaking with me on this episode of Be The Way Forward. Now, if you enjoyed our conversation, then please follow Be The Way Forward wherever you listen to your podcasts. And you can also watch video episodes of this podcast on the AnitaB.org channel on YouTube. For more on how you can be the way forward, head over to AnitaB.org. Be The Way Forward is produced by Dominique Ferrari and Paige Heimsen. Sound design and editing by Neil Ines and Ryan Hammond. Mixing and mastering by Julian Kwasniewski. Associate producer is Faith Krogalecki. Executive produced by Dominique Ferrari, Stacey Booth, and Avi Glijanski for Riveter Studios and Frequency Machine. Executive produced by Arlen Hamilton for Arlen Was Here. Hosted and executive produced by me, Brenda Darden-Wilkerson, WarAnitaB.org. Podcast marketing from Lauren Passell and Ariel Nissenblatt with Riveter Studios and Tink Media in partnership with Carolyn Sneller and Coley Boucher at AnitaB.org. For more ways to be the way forward, visit AnitaB.org.